Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, that is the goal, to present the body of Christ before the Lord to His glory. And what a beautiful ending to that prayer. So I know we are in a series on multiply, but... I'd like to hit pause today because you, you all as a church family blessed my life and my family's life this past Sunday in a really significant way and it just doesn't seem like a thank you card on the church bulletin board would be enough or would be right. So I wanted to interrupt the series uh, on Multiply and say thank you and this passage that Barry just read captures what I have been feeling really for the last two weeks and especially since last Sunday. And I, I would just like to take the next 35 to 40 minutes um, and say thank and say, Lord, thank you. God, thank you for this church and for you as families. And so a little bit of a different approach today, but I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. You blessed us last week with uh, a very generous check in my card, in our card. Vicki, um, the affection that was poured out on her last Sunday was beautiful. And your personal words and investment and affection and just poured out last week. And I just, I just want to take a minute and say thank you. So I'm going to take actually 37 minutes and say thank you. We'll see how it goes. But look again at this passage because it really says, it says what I want to say to you as a church family. I thank God for you every time I think about you. Always in every prayer of mine, because of your partnership in the gospel, mark those words, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Drop to verse 8. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Verses 7 and 8 really, really capture what I want to say to you this morning. That is, it is right for me. It is fitting. When he says it's right for me there in verse 7, what is he saying that in reference to? He's just said, I thank God for you. I'm expressing gratitude to God, and it's right for me to express gratitude to God for you. And in this beautiful personal way Paul says I can't get out of those two things I I can't get away from those two things I want to express gratitude to God because this is how he's really blessed my life and he's used you in our partnership in the gospel to do that and it is right and fitting and it would not be right for me to bypass this opportunity Paul says and that is how I have felt this this week it it is right and fitting for me to say thank you for investing in my life, my family's life. Thank you for blessing us the way that you have. I chose this text because 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, about 11 years ago, this was the first book we studied together. Do you remember that? Some of you may remember that about 11 years ago, we opened the book of Philippians and it was our first study together. And I thought I knew what chapter one was about. I mean, I had the book theme down. I could tell you the key words of the book. I could tell you the high Christology of chapter two. There's lots that I could tell you about the book of Philippians. I mean, I thought I understood the importance of chapter one. But last Sunday, I think I really began to understand what chapter one is about. The thing that really got my attention was chapter se uh, verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 1 is really interesting because it says, I hold you in my heart. And you would think, as you're reading the English translation, that's a real simple, clear phrase. I, I thank God. It's right for me to feel this way. It's, it's right for me to express gratitude this morning because I hold you in my heart, Paul says to the church at Philippi. And I'm saying to you this morning, it's right for me to thank God for you because I, I hold you in my heart. But here's what's really interesting about this expression that got my attention. It got my attention 11 years ago, and it has my attention this week. The syntax in verse 7, the grammar, the construction of the verse, is not clear. It's, 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 it's not clear in the sense that it's either saying one thing or another thing. There's only two options, but it's not clear which of the two options it really is. So that renowned New Testament scholar A.T. Robertson would say, it can be accurately translated, I hold you in my heart. It can be equally accurately translated, you hold me in your heart. And so Robertson said, there's no way to decide which idea is meant except to say this, that love always begets love. And the pastor who, like Paul, holds his people in his heart will soon find them holding him 
in theirs. And I think that's what's happening to me. And I love the way Paul says it. I I hold you there. I keep you close to me. You are dear to me. You mean something to me because we have tasted God's grace together. We've tasted the most important thing that, like the, the thing that makes life worth living. We've tasted that together, Paul says. And that's why I hold you so close to my, to my heart, in my heart. Beautiful language. So I, I've been collecting my, my thank yous in four buckets this week. So let me give you the four buckets. They're big buckets. In fact, they're bigger than, they're, they're too big to put in the back of a pickup truck. They're big buckets. Are you with me? Let me give you these four. Four, uh, four things that we are thankful for, I'm thankful for, and we as a family are thankful for. Number one, embracing a vision of healthy church. Thank you as a church family for embracing a vision for healthy church life. Some churches and pastors work from the assumption that bigger is better. Bigger is always better, faster is better, more is better. Um, there are churches that operate that way. It's, it's known as the success, sen- it, it, it turns into what's been called the success syndrome of ministry. So that then you're soon tied to attendance and budgets and baptisms and other metrics that are easily misleading and often suffocating for church leadership. Back in Georgia, I knew a senior pastor who fired one of his associate pastors because he didn't make the baptism goal two years in a row. So look, if you can't do it, we'll find somebody who can. Man, I wouldn't want to work there. Would you want to work there? Thank God for a church that is not living under the suffocating standards of the world that's just kind of repackaging some things. In church life, that's not how we roll. We, we, want, we aspire to be a healthy church more than anything else. What are we going to invite people into if we're inviting them into a, a, a place where the leadership is suffocating under the expectations of either the rest of the pastoral team or the membership that we have to constantly be performing? Here, come on, get on this treadmill with us, right? As if the world's treadmill is not wasting me already. Come on in here and get some of that. Nobody wants that. So a church should be healthy. What are the marks of a healthy church? Well, there are the obvious marks of a healthy church like biblical preaching, good theology, authentic, vibrant worship, active, responsible members engaged in the body. Those are the obvious, you know, and there's more, but there are several obvious. I want to talk to you a little bit about the not-so-obvious, the underlayer, the, uh, the, the, the layer of soil uh, that, that grows green grass, that makes sheep happy and fed. What's, what are some of those things? What, where, where's some gospel protein in, that makes the soil rich, that feeds a healthy church life? Let me give you a few. Um, there's probably 15 of these, but I'm going to give you the first four that came to my mind. Number one, personal discipleship. You've embraced as a church family, one-on-one, face-to-face, sin-fighting, life-sharing, together, you know, discipleship. This is, this is where it happens. In small groups, one-on-one, um, in twos and threes, man-to-man, woman-to-woman, 
that where people go on long walks and have gospel talks and learn how to express gratitude, not complaining, like we're, we're spiritual formation at the personal level. Thank you for embracing that. We wanna double down on that in the, in the next decade. Like this is where it's at. Number two, uh, peacemaking skills. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want the most, one of the most peace, wouldn't you want, like, doesn't it make sense that the place where there would be a culture of peace and justice, where peace and justice would reign, we were singing about it, is there a place where peace and justice can reign between now and the end when Jesus brings it for the whole world? Yes, that place is called the church. And the church should be a place where people learn how to make peace with God and one another and where, where they learn how to disagree agreeably, where they, have, where, where they learn how to disagree charitably, where we ask, don't assume, where we learn to listen more than talk, where we don't speak over one another, where we're not constantly interrupting each other. We're genuinely wanting to hear what the other person has to say. We value a variety of perspectives. Peacemaking skills are incredibly important in the life of any relationship especially the church. We want to be a place where peace and justice are modeled. We want to be a colony. Like you, you know, think about the church as a colony of the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God is much bigger than any church, but we're, we are the church of God. I mean, so the church is the kingdom of God colonized on the earth right now. The government and the reign of God is not known like it should be and one day will be, but we are colonies places where peace and justice reign. That's what we want to be. So let's practice our peacemaking skills and continue to practice them together. Fighting for peace is worth it. And the way we fight for peace matters. The way we breathe grace, the way we de-escalate situations, the way we express gratitude and practice contentment. We've been learning how to do that. Here's the third thing, hospitality. Oh, that's, like you said, that's, that's gotta be a given. Well, it is, but it isn't. <laughs> because it's easy, to, it's easy to forget it. I wanna thank God this morning for a church where, where it's not just the pastoral team who sees the new face. It's not just the pastoral team who's looking out for guests or strangers or, or first timers. Thank God for a church where we are trying to practice hospitality, see people, embrace, engage, have conversation. Uh, and that hospitality starts here, it spills into the co commons, or it starts in the parking lot, spills back into here, and then it, it goes out into the community, it's in our homes. I, I should say thank you for, for having us in your homes, our family. Uh, I can speak on, on my behalf, my family's behalf, and the pastoral team. Um, thank you for opening your homes to us, back decks, um, cookouts, parties, you know, just spending time together off of the property and in one another's homes and lives. Christian hospitality is, is what really makes that soil rich. Um, we want to keep practicing that. Here's the fourth thing, and you might not, this call, the fourth one's called the well of trust. So let me give you a little bit of backstory because you might not immediately get this. Early on, um, me, Kyle Osborne, and Carrie Robinson, two pastors and a lay pastor, 
met to, to pray and dream about God's desire to restore and heal a wounded, hurting church. Because our, our, our church family went through some, some, some serious, hurtful, a serious, hurtful season. And, and in that meeting, we were praying and dreaming and asking the Lord for, for, for hope and wisdom about what that would look like. And, and out of that meeting came a, this, this thing called the well of trust. And we just committed ourselves early on and began to share with others what, what, what this church needs more than anything is for us as leaders to dig a really deep well. Because no relationship goes anywhere without what? Without trust. And so we just, we just keep saying to each other, and you've embraced this, and you've been saying it back to me, and I'm saying it again to you, let's dig deep a well of trust where, where, where we can trust each other and move forward together in a beautiful um, you know, display of the gospel. Healthy churches are full of people who are willing to dig together a well of trust between one another, and leadership, and in the community. I mean, our witness depends on this. We're, we are talking about multiply. We're going to drop back into multiply next week. Our witness in this community, in this world, depends on having a deep well of trust with deep, clean, life-giving water in it. That's, so that's an image I want to encourage you to hang on to. Sometimes in the last years, early on, earlier, but we're still, yeah, even in recent years, uh, we have felt like, hey, part, part of the side of the well is starting to kind of lose its integrity and, 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 and fall in. We've got to stop what we're doing, and we need to dig and reinforce this side of the well. And we're going to keep doing that. And we, we're asking for you to join us in that. Um, so we would have a, that our church would be characterized by, by a place of peace and a place of deep trust. Here's the second thing. So thank you for embracing a vision of healthy church. And I, I could, the whole sermon could be on this. So I, I gotta move though. Let me give you, this is more personal. Let me go to number two. Thank you for helping me, uh, helping me to thrive just as a person in my job, in my work. Um, let, me say, let, me, let me tell you what I mean. After we had been here for a few years and the honeymoon was over, you know, that does happen right? I found myself in a pretty dark place. 2013, 2014 was probably the darkest of the, of the season. We were still parenting four teenagers, a preteen, and three littles. That's enough to institutionalize anybody. <laughs> so, and I'm trying to help my wife rediscover her place she, where she raised all, where she was, all, all of her children were born in the Wake Forest area. You know, we were there for almost 18 years. I'm trying to help her find a new place here. This was a challenging season for her as well. I was trying to sort out my priorities as a pastor um, because churches often have unrealistic expectations of pastors. I know that's going to surprise you. And pastors have unrealistic expectations of themselves. 
Like you put on yourself, I have to be this excellent preacher, a great leader, best counselor in town, available day or night, hospital visits, also need you to be a gifted organizational manager, oh yeah, prayer warrior, soul winner, and don't forget to be a good husband and father because if a man doesn't care well for his own family, he's worse than an infidel. Great. What are you going to do this week? And, you know, a pastor and a church, if we're not aware of those expectations that, that we put on each other and that, and that I might self-impose or other pastors might self-impose, we, um, we can get into a dark place. And, and I was. And during this dark season, some people were questioning my leadership. I was questioning my leadership. I, find myself, uh, I found myself during that time way too easily frustrated with people. I was living in what we call stress behavior mode, and in stress behavior mode, you're not your best person. I felt that. I'm sure many of you felt that. There's so many things I would handle differently. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for your patience with me. Several key leaders in this church came to me um, pretty soon after I just about passed out on Sunday morning. Do you remember that? This is back in 2013. I'm preaching along, and all of a sudden I look at John, and I say, John, I'm getting a little lightheaded. I think I'm done. I'm going to need to sit down. I thought I was having a heart attack. And um, it was all stress-induced. I, I went and had a full cardiac workup. <laughs> the guy says, man, your, your heart's good to go. There's nothing wrong with your heart. So we did some follow-up stuff and concluded that this was primarily stress-induced. But you didn't give up on me. You didn't say, we have the wrong guy, we need to find another leader. One of our leaders even asked me, I mean, and so, well, yeah, let me back up just a little bit. So after that, several, several leaders in our church family started, I could tell, they didn't have a meeting, I don't think, that, I don't know about a meeting. They may have had a meeting, I don't know about a meeting, but several leaders in our church began to, I could see, um, them moving toward me to try to help me thrive as a leader. What can we do to help you thrive as a leader? Uh, and that was a game changer because when you feel, when, when a pastor hears that from his people, it's just, it's life-giving. All of a sudden he knows somebody's for him and, and on his team and it was so life-giving. And it's, I think, what Paul has in mind in chapter one when he talks about it's their partnership in the gospel. One of them even asked me, he said, when, when do you feel the pleasure of God the most? You know, like chariots of fire stuff. I feel the pleasure of God when I run, you know. So when do you feel the pleasure of God the most? Vocationally, in your work. What, do you, what brings you the most vocational satisfaction? Just, just that question, oh my, like as soon as that question was asked, I could just like feel life coming back into my body and soul. Like, I'll tell you what I love to do. I love to disciple men one-on-one -on -one or to small group. I love to preach and teach. I love to lead our elder team, our pastor elders. I love to partner with our seminary and the Bonhoeffer House to train pastors and biblical counselors and missionaries and church planters and men and women who will go out and serve the church. 
And I would, and I, and I also like to dabble in some writing. I, I like to write as a spiritual discipline. Those are the things, those are the things I love to do. And I could just feel the, the, the brothers around me say, man, look, do those things. You don't have to do everything. Stop trying to do everything. Stop trying to do everything and be everything. You can't. There's no gospel in that. Put the self-sovereignty down and embrace what God has gifted you to do and is leading you to do and feed the flock and love the people and just serve freely. And it was like, wow, that would be awesome. (laughs) And I I could do that. I mean, I want to do that. I hope I can do that. So thank you for helping me to thrive vocationally, for granting me a sabbatical and the other pastors who we've approved sabbatical policy for. Um, thank you for embracing a model where Sunday preaching, Sunday morning preaching, and this, this pulpit is shared with other pastors and lay pastors. It increases their godly influence in the church. It feeds my soul and, and, and my family's soul because they don't want to listen to me every week either. It balances the voice of ministry. Think about the mixing board up there. The balance and the, and the mix that we get in the sound. This just, the sound that we have, the beautiful music that we had a few minutes ago, it's mixed and it, you know, we, we have just the right amount of drum coming in and just the right amount of, of, of strings and voice and it's a mix. And, and what, what happens when you have a number of pastors preaching, not just one person, is you really get a better mix from the board and, and you get more balance and you hear a broader, thicker, healthier voice. So thank you for embracing that, seeing the value of that. Um, and, and thank you for not thinking, oh, Pete's off again this Sunday? Well, he's not really off, he's still working. And so thank you for embracing that. In the last week or so, I've told each of our pastors and lay pastors, all six of them, Carrie and Michael, Chuck and John, Alan and Chip, I am not interested, never have been, never will be interested in being the Lone Ranger. Not interested in that. It's a lot more like a really healthy, yeah, it's a lot more like a posse. I don't know. All analogies break down. Yeah, I'm thinking of Tombstone right now. One of my all-time favorite movies. Why don't you go ahead and skin it right now? (laughs) Sorry, okay, stay focused. I'm your huckleberry. Okay. Stay in the sermon. I'm living my life between two narratives, tombstone and the Bible. Okay. Uh, It is for children over 15, 16. Let's at least say that, just if this is being recorded. Here's the third thing. Thank you for investing in the Shemites. Most search committees would have done this when they found out. You, you, have, eight, you have eight children? <laughs> right, I'm sorry, you're breaking up. <laughs> Boom. Like, who calls, a, who calls a pastor with eight kids? That's crazy. You guys are crazy. Not only did you call us, 
but you have poured your lives into our family. So I just wanna, I wanna walk you through what that looked like. And I'm sure, I know I'm gonna leave somebody out. So please, this is, this is just a color in details. This is not comprehensive. I'm sure I'm gonna leave somebody out. But let me just roll through some ways you've invested in our family. Uh, Karis was able, enabled to go to her, Karis went on her first international mission trip to Greece to serve refugees because of your support and giving to the mission um, budget in this church. And I mean, at least a third, maybe half of her trip was underwritten by, the, by our missions budget. And she was unable to go have an amazing experience discovering what it looks like to give your life away. And each of you who have given faithfully in the last decade have contributed to that. Colby, man, I have got to buckle down here. Colby said, Chip and I really put some Bojangles biscuits down. (laughs) He said, we ate a lot of Bojangles together. Because everyone knows if you're going to do really good man-to-man discipleship, it starts with Bojangles. Do you remember when Jacob learned to ride a bike? Anybody remember that? I, I, I talked about it at some point that, that he learned how to ride a two-wheel bike. The only reason that happened when it did was because Nicole Riley set her affection on helping him meet that goal and invested time and energy to love our family well. Philip. Uh, Riley invested so many of his mornings in Zach, trying to help Zach discover his own faith, not just his parents' faith. Others of you, um, others of you as men in this church, at least two others that I'm thinking of right now, also invested in Zach personally and have continued to try to remain in touch with him, encourage him as he's discovering his faith. When Parker was eight, I'm gonna move to Parker. When Parker was eight, he was struggling to read. So we were like, you know, we had, we really, most of our, most of our kids had read by that point. We were struggling with it. Yeah, maybe, no, I don't know. I'm checking with with my statistician. Fact check. (laughs) Doing a lot of fact checking these days. Um, He was, he was just, he was, he was slow to read, not, didn't, he was, he was bumping into some issues and, and it was hard. We had just gotten here. We were struggling with, as I've said, so many things going on in life. And, um, and Dr. Dr. Robinson, who was at the time also, you know, doing eye care for us, said, I'm, I'm going to, well, he didn't say it. He just did it. He, he, he said, I need, can I have Parker for 15 minutes? And they would practice reading together a couple days a week. That literally jump-started. It was so humbling to me, as if, I, if you want to, if you want to experience some humbling in your life, see the thing: when you have a large family, you just can't do it by yourself. You just literally can't do it by yourself. So you're like, I need help. I don't want the help because none of us want the help, right? We all have that. I do it myself, right? I'll do. It. How old are you? You're about two years old when you when you start saying, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself, right? This is a two-year-old mentality that stays with me for my whole life. I don't need anybody else's help. I'll do it myself. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is, and, 
in our life and the size of our family is that we, we haven't had a choice. We need help. And like I took it. I said, I'll take it. After I got over the pride of, of not being able to organize my schedule, work a little harder, do another thing, do another thing, and get this done too. Like after I got over the pride of that, I'm like, I'll take it. And, 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 now, and now Parker reads <laughs> really well. Like who would have thought? Who would have thunk it? Because somebody invested his life into our family. Anderson would say Jason Schilling, Nathaniel Bennett, and especially Russ Delaney for investing time and energy and buying him breakfast and gospel talk one-on-one. Making sure that wasn't me. I don't usually bring it. Okay. Katie would say, Amanda Amos, thank you, Amanda, for how you've poured into her and the rest of the ninth grade girls instrumental in her faith coming alive. And, and we could multiply examples of this. Not just my family, you have been, as a church family, investing in others and in other people's kids, and that's what we do, and it's a beautiful, amazing thing. But you've, but you've been doing it for us, and, and I just want to say thank you for it. And then that brings me to number eight, Chase. We're presently taking applications for him. So... <laughs> Hashtag, we need all the help we can get. <laughs> all right, I saved the best for last, and that's Vicki. When I asked Vicki what it's meant to her to be here for the last decade, what, what the church, like what would she want to express gratitude to the church for over the last decade, she said to me immediately, without hesitation, the freedom to be a wife and mother first and not live under the expectations of being the church preschool director, piano player, choir member, just go down the list that you know, we can easily put on each other when it comes to a pastor's wife. So thank you on her behalf for giving her the freedom to be a mom, to be a wife and a mother first. I also wanna say there are several women, there, there were several in the first service, I see several in this service as well, who have gone out of your way to invest in her relationally, to love her well, to care for her well, to bless her in your interaction with her, and she has felt that and received it, so thank you for the way you have cared so well for my wife. I really am trying to hold it together up here. Um, number four. Friendship, lasting friendship. I, I've always been uncomfortable with this idea that I was taught early on in seminary by a few, um, you know, from a few sources. You, I've always been uncomfortable with this. Here's, what, here's the way I was taught. You need to protect your wife and yourself from the risk of being burned. So keep your distance in the church. You know, you, you share a confidence with somebody and the next thing you know, it's on Facebook. And, and so just keep your distance. Even before Facebook, in my student years, that did not sound right to me. It just didn't sound right. Now, you know, 25, 30 years later, I fully reject the idea from biblical, theological, and existential reasons. Like, you can't live that way. 
And that's not what the Bible teaches. Friendship and conversation and meals and coffee and walks and hikes, that's how Jesus made disciples. How are you going to bypass friendship in the body of Christ as a leader? How are you going to do that? How are you going to keep distance and be a friend? And, and you, you just can't. Jesus said this, No longer do I call you servants, but, but now I call you what? Friends. Friendship is at the heart of gospel ministry. Friendship is at the heart of gospel ministry. How in the world could a pastor bypass friendship in the life of the church? Yeah, it's, sometimes it's tricky and challenging, and, and, but today on behalf of Vicki and each of my children, I want to say thank you for helping us grow friendship here. And I think that's one of the things that produces longevity in a church life because if, we're, if we press into gospel friendship, then the roots of our lives begin to get entangled uh, tightly. And so then, you know, when you're in that dark season at year four or five or whatever it is, and you get a phone call from the grass is always greener search committee, and they say, hey, you know, then you can say, you know, I, thanks, but I, I'm entangled here. I'm entangled in friendships. I'm entangled in life together. I'm not looking for a way out. I'm going to sink my roots in lasting friendship. Yeah, it can sometimes be risky to have close friendships in the life of the church, but, but don't we think it's worth the risk? I'll take you back to one of my all-time favorite paragraphs from C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves. You might remember this. Lewis says in The Four Loves, when it comes to relationships, there are no safe investments. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to keep it intact, give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Yeah, don't, we don't want that. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how you do life together in Christ. The way you do life together in Christ is you take the risk of sinking your roots and getting them entangled with other lives and saying, I'm, I'm not taking it e the easy way out. I'm going to take a risk because with risk comes the amazing reward not of unrequited love, but of returned, reciprocated, life-giving gospel love. And, and that's what makes the church thrive. And you do this with other people who are, who are, who are new here and, and coming in and, and befriending them, and you do this with other people. We do this with each other. We do this as leaders. Like, if we don't, if we don't double down on lasting gospel friendship, Lasting friendship, well, just lasting friendship. I mean, you could create a lasting friendship that might lead somebody to Christ, 
Not to mention, then discover gospel friendship. So as I approach the 10-year, as I have approached the 10-year mark, people have jokingly asked me, are you going to renew your contract? <laughs> like, you know, are you in for another 10? Here's my answer to that. I would be a fool if I thought I could go somewhere else and have better friends, more fun, and be happier at work. My family's not going to find any more love anywhere else. And this is not just a matter of practicing contentment. Practicing contentment's a really good thing to do in ministry, but I'm not saying that. I'm saying I'd be a fool to go somewhere else and think that we would have more fun and better friendships. It's just not the case. Thank God for what you have been to us, and we hope we have been and will continue to be to you. Can I pray for us? God, thank you for the partnership we share in the gospel from the first day until today. And Lord, we are sure of this, that you, the one who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for us to feel this way about each other because we hold each other in our hearts. And Jesus, thank you for letting us share grace together. It's like we've come to this amazing table and there's more good food. And oh, let me taste that. And there's more of it. Can you pass that? Lord, would you please help us to continue to partake in your feast of grace with one another as your people. We pray all for the glory of Jesus Christ and his praise. Amen. Let's sing together.